Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. And today, time for something all very different from what we usually do here on The Coffee House. Allison, why don't you explain? We, Asa and Allison, live hundreds of miles apart. However, we really enjoy doing things, quote-unquote, together. So in the past, we've done things like see movies at the same time, and we decided that we would try seeing a concert at the same time. And so how we did this is I went to the Lansing Symphony Orchestra here in Lansing, Michigan, and then I sent the program to Asa, and he was And I went to www.youtube.com <laughs> and started typing in names. <laughs> and we will include all of those links for you in our episode description. But as a result, we both experienced a concert program. But we experienced it in different ways. I, of course, experienced it live while Asa saw it on his computer. And so we thought, well, hey, there's obviously differences between a live and a recorded performance. So let's discuss those and maybe we can enlighten our listeners in their own listening preferences, perhaps. So we present for you today a friendly chat and perhaps a little bit of debate about listening to concerts. Yes, so something completely different from what we normally do here in the Coffee House, but it's a program that I'm very excited to put together. So, our concert today consists of three pieces. Trace by Chinese modern composer Zhao Tan, a uh, Rachmaninoff piano concerto number two, and finally, Pictures at an Exhibition by Modest Mazorsky and orchestrated by Ravel. So, a really nice combo there of really modern to good old standard pieces. Um, We're going to maybe start with the first piece that was on the program, which was Trace. I think that's a very good idea. Trace was written in 2013 by Zhao Tan, and his notes say that it's conceived to be, quote, a modern-day Scheherazade, telling the story of his past uh, and vanishing traditions in Chinese as they're absorbed and changed by Western culture. And this piece is a fusion of both of those. It's extremely visual. There's a lot of sort of musical characters interacting broken up by a narrator in the violin. I thought it was very interesting. He was actually in attendance at the concert that I went to, and he pretty much echoed what he said in the program notes when he was on stage talking about it, but he also kind of elaborated more on the traditions that he thought were being lost to the wayside and how with his music he wanted it to bring those traditions back and allow them a fighting chance in this modern world. Now as I mentioned earlier this is an extremely sort of visual and narrative piece and as I'm listening to it at home sitting in front of my computer with the speakers in my room I listen to all of these pieces by the way on speakers and not headphones Um, and I think that was really really changed my experience because I tried listening with headphones. It was completely different. (laughs) But listening listening on speakers in front of my computer, I felt like I could add sort of my own mental imagery to this piece. There's a lot that's going on when you're sitting in a concert hall looking at an orchestra. A lot that I could sort of add to my own experience by 
rereading the program notes on Zhao Tan's website and then by sort of just thinking like, well, what could this possibly be? And as like as, as the, the melodies get very grand and the violin interrupts to do these like long song-like arias of, of narration, I can think of like, well, what is... What is he trying to say? It's interesting because there's all all this sort of stuff around me, right? There's like your room. There's, and... Yeah, there's my room. There's <laughs> rockets on my left and a big old desktop on my right and like Amiibo for my <laughs> Nintendo Switch on the desk in front of me. And I, I felt like I could almost be, at least for this piece, more focused because I'm I'm able to tune out some of those more than the sweaty person trying to hog my armrest to the <laughs> left is allowing me to do and really think about the piece a little bit more on my own. I think that's a really good point. A lot of the audience members, I've realized, well, I'm not sure if it's that they don't understand how the music is ebbing and flowing with like quiet parts and louder parts, but it just sounds like like when people cough, like obviously they have to cough. I'm not going to fault them for a bodily function, but <laughs> I feel like they just purposely choose to do it at the wrong times in some concerts. Do you think it's just because you hear them in the quieter parts? That might be the case, yes. Whereas you definitely don't get that, of course, when you're sitting at home listening to a recording. Oh, that... I coughed many times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's your own cough. Right. Um. But anyway, sitting in the audience, specifically for this piece, however, I didn't notice so much coughing. Now, that might have been, one, because it was the first piece on the program, but two, because it was so very interesting. And it's in that genre of modern, where it's kind of like romantic music, but it's modern, updated version of it. So it's exciting and powerful. And I think that's really just the type of music that live audiences really get into so I think when people are more engaged, they're more likely to respect the music. I feel like that's kind of what happened in this piece with the audience here, in that I was able to really focus on simply what was going on on stage and not really worried about what was happening around me and the rest of the audience. Now, did seeing what was going on on stage and looking at the performers themselves, did that impact your enjoyment or your interpretation of what the music was giving you Uh, yes oh my gosh it definitely did i strongly believe that live performances allow me to better understand what the composer was getting at because i can like hear a little sound and i can look into the audience the orchestra excuse me and see who's playing that and just by simply like seeing oh look the horn is playing right now i can better tune in on a certain counter melody or accompaniment figure and in that way i'm able to better understand the interplay that the composer wanted within the orchestra which sometimes if i can't quite make out what a sound is supposed to be in a recording then i might lose the plot of that sub melody and therefore not have as rich of an experience as the composer wanted I'd like to offer perhaps a, a different perspective to that and, and move on, if we may, or at least jump to uh, the Rachmaninoff piano concerto sure. that we watched. Now, the YouTube video that I watched on this was performed by Anna Fedovra. It's a piano concerto, of course. And this was a recording of a live performance in which they actually showed the film of the concert. And the editors of this, uh, it, it's by an organization, the editors of this video 
had done some creative things and, you know, focused in on the performer at some points, and there are differing camera angles, and mm-hmm. I found myself distracted by the performers and coming back to... Now, are you talking about the entire orchestra or just the pianist? Both. Number okay. one, because she was very wearing a very sparkly golden dress, uh, <laughs> which was, of course, very eye-catching. But number two, and I, I find myself thinking this sometimes during live performances as well, is that sometimes, like you say, Allison, I tune in very strongly onto something because I can see it happening, right? When the oboe for perhaps or, or the strings perform a, a particular line or melody, I can look at them and I can see them and then I lose the rest of the orchestra and I lose the full picture. Maybe this is a, an Asa thing as opposed to <laughs> an odd like a general audience thing, but somehow when when I was listening to Trace, uh and again when I'm listening to as I will get to um a lot of the pictures at the exhibition, I found myself more able to hear an entire picture. Although pictures was a little bit different because of a reason that we'll get to here <laughs> here in a moment. I was found that I was made more able to focus on the entirety of the performance and the overarching sound rather than being sort of distracted and zoomed in on one or two things. Well, that's very interesting. So I had a similar, I guess, visual problem with the performer in my viewing of the piece. So, of course, I only had the one vantage point and I wasn't like right up there in the face of the performer as I suppose a video camera could be. But I felt like in my head when I listen to piano concertos, I have... A thought of if I was the performer, the mov- the movements that I would be doing, like how performers kind of dance with the pieces that they're playing. And interestingly, I felt like the performer that I saw, um, Elliot Wu, a very young pianist, I felt like his motions were not the motions I wanted. And in that way, it kind of distracted me from listening to the musicality. But I found when I looked at other parts of the orchestra, just kind of zoned out completely, that I was able to better enjoy the piece because I could instill my own visions on the piece rather than what was being presented to me by the performer. So specifically with the Rachmaninoff, I I definitely got that in part because there's so much going on in that piece. There's so much going on in the piano line, especially like there's a very strong melodic foundation underlying this piece with as a lot of Russian music around this time, a lot of Russian romantic music, it's very, very, very strong melody and very rooted in folk music but then the piano... And particularly Rachmaninoff writes exactly. long, long melodic lines. Oh, yes. and But with <laughs> the, the piano is such is so embellishing, right? It's 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 mm-hmm. taking this melody and the whole point of its solo, solo lines are often to take a theme established by the orchestra, such as in the first movement, the end of the first movement, where the piano takes the simple four-note theme established by the French horn and then twists it and turns it and, together with the orchestra, plays it in different octaves, different time, different registers, expands it, condenses it, reverses it, flips it on its head, and, and all this <laughs> stu- and all this sort of stuff. And while I was looking at... Uh, Miss Fedavra's fingers going all over the piano. 
I lost that melody completely. And then when I would turn away or close my eyes, I could begin to pick out the original theme and how it was then woven into the unbelievable virtuosity of her playing. So I wonder if perhaps we can table the discussion about soloistic performances that are live versus recorded, because it seems like we can't make a decision if it was simply the performers that we were seeing or what I'm beginning to think now, maybe it's an aspect of having a soloist that makes Possibly. it difficult for us to focus on a recording. Perhaps that could be a future episode where we can review many different performances of concertos or solo kind of things and maybe come to a better conclusion on that point. I think All so. Right. So let's talk about the last piece on our program today. Uh, Modesto Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition. This version, of course, orchestrated by Maurice Ravel. It was composed, this is this is important to my uh, my listening, it was composed following a tour of works by late artist Victor Hartman, who was one of Mussorgsky's close friends at the time. And why I say that is because my video of this included not an orchestra, not video <laughs> of performance, but different paintings. I am assuming, although it wasn't stated in the description, that these are some of the images that Mussorgsky saw while he was touring, uh, while he was touring this exhibition and finished writing the piece. And so, you know, I love that. Every time I've ever heard this piece, all I've ever wanted is to see the pictures that inspired each of the movements. <laughs> so I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it was <laughs> extremely interesting. Um, and I want to make special mention of the uh, oh, and I can never remember how to pronounce the Shemuel and Shmule, the the two Jews. Uh, movement near the near the middle of the piece uh, one rich mm -hmm. and one poor these two uh paintings there's one a, a painting of, of one rich man and, and one other man sort of down on his luck in the in an alleyway and the way the editor of this video did this was while the orchestra was playing the theme or the character of one of these that was up on screen and while they were playing the other one this gentleman was up on screen. And, <laughs> of course, that piece flips back and forth between characters very rapidly as they're sort of, like, taunting each other and talking about, you know, that one's monetary wealth and the other's spiritual wealth. And it all... And it's eventually sort of coming together at the end. And the way that these transitions between these two pieces or between these two paintings sort of went back and forth and flashed up on the screen and then back off and then back on. Uh, it was actually both distracting and an addition to the piece, I think so. <laughs> I feel like I had a similar character viewing experience in the live performance, and that is with the conductor. It's not quite the same, obviously, but the conductor does have to show style with his poise and... I'm, I've always admired conductors for being able to show the character that they want. For example, during the promenade sections of the pictures at an exhibition, our conductor here that I saw, um, Timothy Muffet, the conductor of the Lansing Symphony Orchestra, 
He was very upright and his hands were to the fore of his body and his conducting was very crisp. And I thought that was very perfect for the promenade where you're supposed to be walking from one painting to another and was very evocative of a grand person going through some grand museum like the Louvre, perhaps. I really liked that. And he also, in the other movements scattered throughout, of course, for example, in the ballet of the Unhatched Chicks, he was more jovial with that kind of leaning back and forth in a dancing sort of manner that I thought was very appropriate for that cute piece. That to say, I really don't like this piece. Really? Yes. Like um, as as a whole, pictures at an exhibition? Not as a whole. It gets better after the ballet of the chicks, <laughs> I think. And the very last movement, the Great Gate of Kiev, is Masterful. probably my favorite move. Yes. I do like that one a lot. But it for me, it really starts on a low note and crescendos to the end, I suppose. And I was trying to think of why it is that I don't like this piece, and I think it might be the orchestration. So we mentioned that it was written by Mazorsky and orchestrated by Ravel. Now, that's not to say that I don't like Ravel. I think he is a masterful orchestrator, but this was originally written for piano, and I wonder if maybe I would like the piano version better. Overall, it just kind of seems... This is going to sound strange, but it seems almost too perfect. Interesting. That's a very interesting thing to say. And I think by perfect, I might mean you expect what's going to happen to happen. Hmm. There are a little flute tremolo trill exactly where you expect it to be. So I guess it's almost like I don't enjoy it because I know what's going to happen and there's nothing exciting about it. Now, could that just be a reflection of perhaps masterful character and just where you might expect the where you might expect the uh, unhatched chicks to be twirling around there is your there's your flute trill and it's and it's not just uh, and it's it's Ravel instead interpreting the character of the original piano pieces yes it might also just be that i don't like the melodies of it i i don't know it's very uncharacteristic of me i feel to not like this kind of piece like a very programmatic romantic era piece i don't know just something about it makes it not my favorite but now, that's not to say that it like the performance i watched wasn't good it was an excellent performance now i definitely can't say that i heartily enjoy every single piece there or every single movement <laughs> of this piece um but i i do believe and this is something that i hinted at earlier that my listening experience to this piece was perhaps colored by the fact that i have performed it uh, and so I performed this on bass clarinet, which is not the most prominent instrument in the orchestra. But it means you get a lot of downtime well, to watch the rest of the orchestra. Sometimes, but except in this in this in this particular orchestration, sometimes it is. Uh, there are these little little notes and flourishes that the bass clarinet gets in this orchestration of pictures at an exhibition. You know, listening to this. Now, a year after the performance, I found myself listening intently to try to pick out my parts rather than <laughs> listening to the orchestra. So in uh, like in Nomus, just listening for those low notes that the bass clarinet uh, performs and along with the orchestra sort of providing that foundation. Conversely, you know, some some movements I sat tacit and I had a very interesting perspective on those right in front of the timpani. <laughs> so now I can listen more closely to get a better picture of the entire uh, of the entire orchestra. 
And I think that might be an entire another podcast that we could do, talk about listening to works that we have performed. But I would like to add, I think it really adds something to my listening when I've been in that process of like the conductor nitpicking everything and making it just exactly perfect. And you get to hear all the parts broken down, like they'll have the trumpets play something and then the violins play something. And so you really get to hear the score broken down in front of you. And then I think when you get to go listen to it, you have a greater appreciation for how it all comes together. Now, I want to touch a little bit on something that we mentioned earlier, like honing in on performers or certain lines in the live performance. I felt that while I was performing this piece and listen, and seeing it in concert another time, um, the sort of disjointed pieces, the ones that have many different things going on, the ones that are less melodic, such as the gnome and the cabin on two legs, better known as Baba Yaga, or <laughs> it's <laughs> those are harder now that I'm not able to look at the orchestra and hone in on certain lines. There, it's harder to keep my interest when when the melodies are not prominent. And I think this might be a reflection of what I enjoy listening to. I enjoy listening to strong melodic pieces, often by Russian composers. Um, <laughs> but some of some of those uh, sort of wild and complex pieces uh, were were much tougher to follow uh, when I did not have when I did not have a visual point of reference. Conversely, the melodic pieces uh, I often found myself singing along without, of course, not in the concert hall, without regard to who's sitting next to me. <laughs> I think you might have just hit the nail on the head of what I was trying so desperately to get to earlier of that. I like the more melodic parts of this piece, whereas, as you said, the gnome or the hut on two legs, they're not so melodic. They're very kind of soundtrack-esque as though like there's something on screen that you'd be would be having your attention and they're just exemplifying. Like Yes. And I think that's Exactly it. It's like I have no point of reference of why I should care about that music. So what you were saying earlier about it being over-characterized, I think that's exactly what I was trying to get at and exactly why I'm not as big a fan of it. Now, I definitely have to say that I got the exact same goosebumps I got from the live performance of The Great Gate of Kiev. And being able to sort of turn it up to 11 and crank that volume knob... Uh, and hear the full weight of a properly recorded mixed orchestra instead of timpani, timpani, timpani behind me. <laughs> During that piece especially, maybe enjoy this listening experience immensely. So do you think you or me had the better listening experience with The Great Gate of Kiev? With The Great? Oh. You having listened to it just on your speakers cranked way up and me having been in the auditorium with it. That is a very good question. Because Um, I would argue that I had a pretty good time listening to it. (laughs) Oh, and I had a pretty darn good time, too. (laughs) You know, I I don't think that I can quantifiably say that one of our experiences was better. Because I'm certain that that the Lansing Symphony played a spectacular great gate and was able to project their sound and, and give you goosebumps. And, and really, really make you sort of like get out, like want to get out of your seat and stand. Because that's exactly what I wanted to do. And because I was at home, 
in my apartment with a glass of lemonade. I did. <laughs> that is exactly what I did. I guess that brings us to the end of our concert. Indeed. Our semi-simultaneous concert listening experience. Again, we encourage you to go and listen to these pieces. Maybe come up with your own thoughts. And if you feel so inclined, you could send them to us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com or post on our Facebook page. And again, we will include some links in our episode description that you can go and listen to these wonderful pieces. So this time for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Discussion Podcast, mm-hmm. I am Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 was performed by Gleb Ivanov in the DuPage Symphony Orchestra conducted by Barbara Schubert. Mazorsky and Ravel's Pictures at an Exhibition was performed by the Skidmore College Orchestra. You can find the Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at Podcast Coffeehouse. If you have feedback about this episode, email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.